In today's episode, Megan Essahed, Director of Immigration Advocacy at Asian Americans Advancing Justice, joins the podcast. We talk about how new immigration policies are introduced and advocated to congressional members. We also touch upon the latest in humanitarian aid at the border and how her organization works to stay at the forefront of influencing immigration legislation and support. From grassroots to the hill, AAJC covers the full spectrum. I'm Ian Gaines. Come join us beyond borders. Welcome to Immigration Nerds. Today we have Megan Esseheb, uh, Director of Immigration Advocacy at Asian Americans Advancing Justice. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me, Ian. Great, great. Could you tell us a little bit about AAJC and the purpose and mission? Sure. We're an Asian American civil rights organization. Our mission is to advance the civil and human rights for Asian Americans and promote a fair and equitable society for all. Mm -hmm. So we're fighting for civil rights through education, litigation, and public policy advocacy and um, empowering AAPI communities by bringing local and national constituencies together and ensuring Asian Americans are able to participate fully in our democracy. Mm -hmm. Great, great. So how did this come about? So we were founded in 1991, actually, by one of our affiliates, Asian Mm -hmm. Americans Advancing Justice LA. We have affiliates in Los Angeles, San Francisco, Chicago, and Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And um, Advancing Justice Los Angeles has been around since the 80s, and their executive director felt that we needed a presence um, in D.C. and the halls of Congress to represent civil rights issues affecting Asian Americans. Great. So uh, what are some of the programs and services that you guys provide? Sure. So our core areas are we work on voting rights, Hmm. the census, immigration, telecommunications, tech, and media. Right. As your role as Director of Immigration Advocacy, uh, what are some of your personal tasks and responsibilities? Sure. So we most I mostly focus on um, federal immigration advocacy, and um, I kind of think of the work in four buckets: preserving and promoting our family-based immigration system. And we have a campaign called the Value Our Families campaign. We work with hmm. other organizations um, to counter Trump's uh, anti-immigrant narrative around cutting immigration, and hmm. specifically the family-based system and the. De- diversity visa program. Mm-hmm. Another area we've worked a lot on is to fight back against the Muslim ban mm-hmm. and other policies rooted in Islamophobia. Mm-hmm. The third area is to protect and promote access to citizen status and citizenship. Mm-hmm. So um, that includes defending the DACA program, Um, Defending the Temporary Protected Status Programs, particularly we work with our partner, Adhikar, which serves Nepali-speaking community, Mm -hmm. and um, Nepal had TPS. The administration is trying to terminate. And then uh, in immigration enforcement, we've largely been focused on work through the Defund Hate Campaign, which Mm -hmm. is asking Congress to slash funding for immigration agents and detention beds, and then, of course, not fund the wall. Right. So that's interesting because this is the Asian American advancing justice, but working with the Muslim ban and at the border particularly, Mm -hmm. it's much more broader than just serving you know, a specific demographic. It seems that you guys work as a whole in general, immigration as a whole. 
Yes, yes. Well, every immigration issue, almost every immigration issue actually does affect Asian immigrants, right? Mm. So the border turns out there are thousands of South Asians coming up through our southern border, mm. crossing the southern border and seeking asylum, and actually de- devastatingly uh, a small child from India died on the border a week ago. Wow. So um, everything the administration is doing at the border does actually impact some Asian immigrants. But of course, we also care um, about working in coalition with our partners. So we certainly care about the refugees that are coming from Central America, fleeing violence and poverty as well. And, you know, um, so different areas we work, um, we wouldn't necessarily lead on that issue, but we try to support on that issue, just like the Latino community supports us on issues that might impact Asian Americans more. Right. Solidarity. Yeah. Yeah. What affects one affects all. Right. right? Um, That's that's nice to hear. So any sort of projects that you're excited about or that's coming up for you guys? Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So a lot of our work under the Trump administration has been defensive, um, right, and Mm. and fighting back against everything they're doing um, from uh, legislation to slash family-based immigration to um, the public charge rule uh, where they're attacking uh, family-based immigration administratively and, as I mentioned, the Muslim ban. Um, Real quick, could you uh, explain the public charge real quick? So the public charge is a term used by immigration officials to refer to people who rely on government assistance to primarily support their cost of day-to-day living. Mm. Under current law, officials look at a variety of factors in deciding whether a person is likely to become a public charge. And and then they, um, if they think someone's likely to become a public charge, they can deny them a green card Mm. um, or other visa. Uh, but they only mainly look at cash assistance and long-term nursing care paid for by the government. This administration has proposed a new rule, which would vastly change that, mm-hmm. um, which looks at uh, a bunch of means-tested benefits, such as Medicaid, Section 8 housing, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. And while many immigrants who would be subject to the rule actually are not eligible for most of those programs, the new test will say is, is this person likely to use these benefits in the future? Right. So under law, someone with a green card after five years is eligible for Medicaid. But they're going to hold that against them in determining whether they can obtain a green card. And they're specifically going to look at factors such as age, income, health conditions, and English language ability. So, I mean, we think this is um, particularly going to attack or prohibit older immigrants from getting green cards, disabled immigrants from becoming getting green cards, perhaps even larger families, people with multiple children. But if you just think about a U.S. citizen sponsoring their parent who's older and they may just have, you know, something common like high blood pressure, um, that's going to be a negative factor. Just by being older and fixed on a fixed income, being retired, those are going to be negative factors. So we think this is very much a backdoor way Hmm. to try to prevent people from getting green cards. 
right. and, and lower immigration, which is the goal of this administration, is to lower immigration into the United States. Sure. So historically, it really was not used a lot to deny hmm. people green cards. It was really about historically people who might not work at all right. and not have family to take care of them. So the way around the that rule yeah. historically was just a family member signed a sworn affidavit saying, um, I will financially support this person. And that hmm. was enough for the government to say, well, they're not going to become dependent on the government because they have these family members who are going to support them if they can't work. Um, or they don't work. And so that's really historically how the rule's been implemented. Um, it is interesting to note the rule was first, the first public charge rule was passed in the same year as the Chinese Exclusion Act. Mm. Um, and it was passed to keep out Irish immigrants. Well, obviously the Chinese Exclusion Act was passed to keep out Chinese people. So it was a heightened time of, xenophobia in this country and that you know the the rule itself has racist origin we see it again being used basically for yeah. with racist intent right hmm. um the the other programs that you work with and you have you have to be involved with uh, congress that sort of advocacy so could you tell us how you you know go about bringing to congress about different initiatives that you have and what that interaction is like. Sure. Yeah. So a lot of my work is advocating in Congress, I think particularly under this administration where administrative advocacy is not very fruitful. Yeah. So uh, we look to Congress to really provide a check on the executive branch and to, um, you know, stop uh, harmful legislation, a lot of it. But but we are excited that Representative Judy Chu is going to introduce a forward-looking affirmative bill on family-based immigration called the Reuniting Families Act. And that bill would update and improve some of the problems in the family-based immigration system by clearing long backlogs or long wait lines in certain categories for mm. people. It would also provide um, same-sex sponsorship for people who uh, live in countries where it's not uh, gay marriage is not legal. And it would provide some other tweaks and updates. It has important enforcement relief for families that are getting torn apart by deportations, um, mm. allowing them to uh, apply for waivers to stay in the country or waivers to come back even after they've been deported to allow their families to sponsor them to come back to the United States. So that's getting some movement. So that will be introduced in the coming months. Part of the value of our families campaign work is to try to get as many co-sponsors in the house as we can get. Um, we're having a fly-in in July where we bring community members from around the country to come meet with their members of Congress. And I really like that part of my work because um, at the end of the day, you know, members of Congress really care about what their constituents want, why they were elected. So I see my role as, as translating the technicalities of the policy and process in Congress to members of the community and empowering members of the community to be able to advocate for themselves with their, their senators and their members of Congress. Great, great. So in our defund hate work, which is largely around the appropriations versus government funding, um, particularly of the Department of Homeland Security, we do see that as a long-term battle. And we started it when Republicans still controlled the House. So, you know, we weren't going to win on the issue, but we recognize that the U.S. has a massive 
detention and deportation machine that didn't start with this president. The groundwork was laid many years ago, and we've seen both Republican and Democratic administrations and Congresses increase funding for um, ICE detention uh, and border security militarization at our border. So um, we wanted to start to develop champions in both the House and the Senate who would say, wait, stop, we shouldn't be increasing funding. We should actually be cutting funding so that in the long term, we might actually see cuts, right? So saying no to Trump when he asks for more money is not enough. We need people who are saying we actually need to cut these budgets. This is not um, investing in our communities. This is causing harm, and this money would be better spent in all sorts of areas investing um, in communities. I think at first, you know, that some of the Democrats thought we were crazy because we were making demands that were, in the last Congress, not attainable, but they've gotten used to us, and we've gotten some more progressive members to really talk about um, cutting these funds. Uh, we work in the House a lot with the Tri-Caucuses, which is the Congressional Asian Pacific American Caucus, which is where I lean in, um, the Congressional Black Caucus, where we have you know, partners who work with them, and um, the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. And increasingly so, the Congressional Progressive Caucus as well. So we sort of start with building support for these ideas with those members. Yeah, that's it. But yeah, first talking to those who will at least have an open ear. Right. We asked them to weigh in with leadership, with Speaker Pelosi, with Leader Schumer. Um, and, you know, we've had some wins in terms of um, Democrats increasingly saying no to Trump on um, detention beds and trying to at least hold the line. We, we want to see those numbers decrease because immigration, immigrant detention is civil detention. It's not criminal detention. And it's not necessary, you know, regardless of whether people think people should be deported. Um, people are deported without ever being put in immigrant detention. And it's not you know, inhumane, we think, and not necessary. Right. So <laughs> the House passed the bill, I think it's $4.5 billion worth of humanitarian aid at the border. Mm -hmm. A lot of these facilities are overcrowded. Families in certain, certain uh, circumstances, they're still separated and they're not getting adequate, you know, food, shelter, just even just hygiene needs. So uh, they just recently passed that. Mm -hmm. I know just to help uh, a little bit of those, like the the circumstance, the living conditions mm -hmm. of those who are detained. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the the challenge, the big challenge with that is, I think there's there's some need for funding on the humanitarian side. But the problem is whenever Congress, but taxpayer dollars go to the Department of Homeland Security, much of that money gets shifted to detention. So we've seen money come from FEMA and go to immigrant detention. You know, we don't like that bill because we think uh, there's some effort in it to, to, pro to prohibit uh, transfer of funds within the agency. But we think that some of that money will still go to um, particularly border to camps to detain families. And again, these families do not need to be detained. Um, people are getting court dates for asylum interviews and 
they can get released. Most of them have family members in the U.S. who can house them. Uh, people show up for their asylum court hearings at very high rates, especially if they have attorneys. Um, so the, the detention itself is completely unnecessary and inhumane. And we're in this catch-22 of, well, the government might need more money for medical care, for example, um, or for health and human services to place children to for the children who are unaccompanied in you know, foster care or just to place them in, with their family members. But at the same time, we know that Trump is demanding that some of this money go towards actual enforcement and some kind of detention whether it's in, um, you know, uh, camps. That's an interesting perspective. I haven't uh, heard that. So this is actually kind of new in terms of like that money that they're allocating. They'll use those funds not so much for aid and might shift it into funding like enforcement. Right. Some will some will go to aid, but right. it's, it's a package. It's a it's a compromise package because obviously Democrats don't control the Senate and they don't control the presidency. So, you know, the president is demanding actual enforcement money along with the humanitarian money that the Democrats and some Republicans, to be fair, want more humanitarian money. So So there's no language within the the bill saying that, okay, out of the 4.5 billion, let's say, Two billion is going to enforcement. It, it does say it's going to these particular items. It does say that. It's just that um, it's not that hard for money to move around. And the border patrol money, we we expect some of it to go to tent camps. And then that's even within the law. But then, of course, we know this president is isn't super attached to the law. So well, well, here in, we don't know in, what they'll do beyond. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, here in immigration nerds, we, we don't make speculations. We, we wait until the actual news okay. drops. But yeah. Well. <laughs> I understand that. <laughs> I'll say from our perspective. Yeah, yeah. Um, they've been good. pushing. They've been pushing the limits of, I think, the law even on how they, how they spend the money. So it's been um, difficult. Even, I think, look, the House Appropriations Committee last Congress told them in in the Appropriations um, Committee report, which is bipartisan, both Republicans and Democratic House members said, told them to stop overspending on detention. That Congress appropriates a certain amount to detention and they are overspending on it and they should not be doing that. And they continue to do that. So. Proofs <laughs> in the pudding. All right. If people wanted to get involved and support AAJC, how can they do that? Sure. So um, they can join the Value Our Families campaign. Um, my email is on our website, I believe. Um, so I would encourage folks to to join our list. Are you and guys on any social medias? And yes, we have Twitter. <laughs> we have Facebook. We're very active on Twitter. You should uh, follow us and follow us on Facebook. But um, certainly reach out. We have been having several fly-ins a year. So that's one p- way people around the country can, you know, we we raise funding to be able to pay for people's transportation to come and meet with their members of Congress oh, wow. and advocate mm-hmm. on our issues. Um, we have an annual conference that folks can participate in. Um, and if folks are in the area, in the D.C. metro area, we co-host naturalization clinics and we always oh, need wow. volunteer volunteers for naturalization sure. mm-hmm. um uh, and you know there's other 
uh, internship opportunities as well. Great. Appreciate it. Well, Megan, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. For more content and immigration updates, please visit our website at eiglaw.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter at EIG underscore law to join the conversation. Thank you for listening. See you next time.